Volume One, Section Fifteen of the Life of Charlotte Bronte. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of Charlotte Bronte, by Elizabeth Cleghorn Gaskell, Volume One, Section Fifteen. Chapter Eleven. I am not aware of all the circumstances which led to the relinquishment of the Lille plan. Brussels had had, from the first, a strong attraction for Charlotte, and the idea of going there, in preference to any other place, had only been given up in consequence of the information received of the second-rate character of its schools. In one of her letters reference had been made to Mrs. Jenkins, the wife of the chaplain of the British Embassy at the request of his brother a clergyman living not many miles from haworth and an acquaintance of mr bronte's she made much inquiry and at length after some discouragement in her search heard of a school which seemed in every respect desirable there was an english lady who had long lived in the orleans family amidst the various fluctuations of their fortunes and who when the princess louise was married to king leopold accompanied her to brussels in the capacity of reader this lady's granddaughter was receiving her education at the pensionnat of madame Heger, and so satisfied was the grandmother with the kind of instruction given that she named the establishment with high encomiums to mrs jenkins and in consequence it was decided that if the term suited Miss Bronte and Emily should proceed thither. Monsieur Heger informs me that on receipt of a letter from Charlotte making very particular inquiries as to the possible amount of what are usually termed extras, he and his wife were so much struck by the simple earnest tone of the letter that they said to each other, These are the daughters of an English pastor of moderate means, anxious to learn with an ulterior view of instructing others and to whom the risk of additional expense is of great consequence let us name a specific sum within which all the expenses shall be included this was accordingly done the agreement was concluded and the brontes prepared to leave their native county for the first time if we accept the melancholy and memorable residence at cowan bridge mr bronte determined to accompany his daughters mary and her brother who were experienced in foreign travelling were also of the party charlotte first saw london in the day or two they now stopped there and from an expression in one of her subsequent letters they all i believe stayed at the chapter coffee-house paternoster row a strange old-fashioned tavern of which i shall have more to say hereafter mary's account of their journey is thus given in passing through london she seemed to think our business was and ought to be to see all the pictures and statues we could she knew the artists and knew where other productions of theirs were to be found i don't remember what we saw except st paul's emily was like her in these habits of mind but certainly never took her opinions but always had one to offer i don't know what charlotte thought of brussels we arrived in the dark and went next morning to our respective schools to see them we were of course much preoccupied and our prospects gloomy charlotte used to like the country round brussels at the top of every hill you see something she took long solitary walks on the occasional holidays 
Mr. Bronte took his daughters to the Rue d'Isabelle, Brussels, remained one night at Mr. Jenkins, and straight returned to his wild Yorkshire village. What a contrast to that must the Belgian capital have presented to those two young women thus left behind! Suffering acutely from every strange and unaccustomed contact, far away from their beloved home and the dear moors beyond, their indomitable will was their great support. Charlotte's own words with regard to Emily are, After the age of twenty, having meantime studied alone with diligence and perseverance, she went with me to an establishment on the continent. The same suffering and conflict ensued, heightened by the strong recoil of her upright heretic and English spirit from the gentle Jesuitry of the foreign and Romish system. Once more she seemed sinking, but this time she rallied, through the mere force of resolution, with inward remorse and shame she looked back on her former failure and resolved to conquer, but the victory cost her dear. She was never happy till she carried her hard-won knowledge back to the remote English village, the old parsonage house, and desolate Yorkshire hills. They wanted learning. They came for learning. They would learn. Where they had a distinct purpose to be achieved in intercourse with their fellows, they forgot themselves. At all other times they were miserably shy. Mrs. Jenkins told me that she used to ask them to spend Sundays and holidays with her until she found that they felt more pain than pleasure from such visits. Emily hardly ever uttered more than a monosyllable. Charlotte was sometimes excited sufficiently to speak eloquently and well on certain subjects, but before her tongue was thus loosened she had a habit of gradually wheeling round on her chair so as almost to conceal her face from the person to whom she was speaking. And yet there was much in Brussels to strike a responsive chord in her powerful imagination. At length she was seeing somewhat of that grand old world of which she had dreamed. As the gay crowds passed by her, so had gay crowds paced those streets for centuries, in all their varying costumes. Every spot told an historic tale, extending back into the fabulous ages when Jan and Janneke, the aboriginal giant and giantess, looked over the wall, forty feet high, of what is now the Rue Villa Hermosa, and peered down upon the new settlers who were to turn them out of the country in which they had lived since the deluge the great solemn cathedral of st gudule the religious paintings the striking forms and ceremonies of the romish church all made a deep impression on the girls fresh from the bare walls and simple worship of haworth church and then they were indignant with themselves for having been susceptible of this impression and their stout protestant hearts arrayed themselves against the false duessa that had thus imposed upon them the very building they occupied as pupils in Madame Heger's pensionnat had its own ghostly train of splendid associations marching forever in shadowy procession through and through the ancient rooms and shaded alleys of the gardens. From the splendor of to-day in the Rue Royale, if you turn aside near the statue of the General Belliard, you will look down four flights of broad stone steps upon the Rue d'Isabelle. The chimneys of the houses in it are below your feet. 
opposite to the lowest flight of steps there is a large old mansion facing you with a spacious walled garden behind and to the right of it in front of this garden on the same side as the mansion and with great boughs of trees sweeping over their lowly roofs is a row of small picturesque old-fashioned cottages not unlike in degree and uniformity to the almshouses so often seen in an english country town the rue d'isabelle looks as though it had been untouched by the innovations of the builder for the last three centuries and yet any one might drop a stone into it from the back windows of the grand modern hotels in the rue royale built and furnished in the newest parisian fashion in the thirteenth century the rue d'isabelle was called the fosse aux chiens and the kennels for the ducal hounds occupied the place where madame heger's pensionnat now stands a hospital in the ancient large meaning of the word succeeded to the kennel the houseless and the poor perhaps the leprous were received by the brethren of a religious order in a building on this sheltered site and what had been a fosse for defence was filled up with herb gardens and orchards for upwards of a hundred years then came the aristocratic guild of the crossbow men that company the members whereof were required to prove their noble descent untainted for so many generations before they could be admitted into the guild and being admitted were required to swear a solemn oath that no other pastime or exercise should take up any part of their leisure the whole of which was to be devoted to the practice of the noble art of shooting with the crossbow once a year a grand match was held under the patronage of some saint to whose church steeple was affixed the bird or semblance of a bird to be hit by the victor footnote scott describes the sport shooting at the popinjay as an ancient game formerly practised with archery but at this period sixteen seventy nine with firearms this was the figure of a bird decked with parti-coloured feathers so as to resemble a popinjay or parrot it was suspended to a pole and served for a mark at which the competitors discharged their fusees and carbines in rotation at the distance of seventy paces he whose ball brought down the mark held the proud title of captain of the popinjay for the remainder of the day and was usually escorted in triumph to the most respectable change-house in the neighbourhood where the evening was closed with conviviality conducted under his auspices and if he was able to maintain it at his expense from old mortality End of footnote. the conqueror in the game was roi des arbaletriers for the coming year and received a jewelled decoration accordingly which he was entitled to wear for twelve months after which he restored it to the guild to be again striven for the family of him who died during the year that he was king was bound to present the decoration to the church of the patron saint of the guild and to furnish a similar prize to be contended for afresh these noble crossbow men of the middle ages formed a sort of armed guard to the powers in existence and almost invariably took the aristocratic in preference to the democratic side in the numerous civil dissensions of the flemish towns hence they were protected by the authorities and easily obtained favourable and sheltered sites for their exercise ground 
and thus they came to occupy the old fosse and took possession of the great orchard of the hospital lying tranquil and sunny in the hollow below the rampart but in the sixteenth century it became necessary to construct a street through the exercise ground of the arbaletrier du grand sermon and after much delay the company were induced by the beloved infanta isabella to give up the requisite plot of ground in recompense for this isabella who herself was a member of the guild and had even shot down the bird and been queen in sixteen fifteen made many presents to the arbaletrier and in return the grateful city which had long wanted a nearer road to st gudule but been baffled by the noble archers called the street after her name she as a sort of indemnification to the arbaletrier caused a great mansion to be built for their accommodation in the new rue d'isabelle this mansion was placed in front of their exercise ground and was of a square shape on a remote part of the walls may still be read filippo quatuor hispan reggae isabella clara eugenia hispan infants magni guldai regina guldai fratribus posuit in that mansion were held all the splendid feasts of the grand sermon des arbaletriers the master archer lived there constantly in order to be ever at hand to render his services to the guild the great saloon was also used for the court balls and festivals when the archers were not admitted the infanta caused other and smaller houses to be built in her new street to serve as residences for her garde noble and for her garde bourgeoise a small habitation each some of which still remain to remind us of english almshouses the great mansion with its quadrangular form the spacious saloon once used for the archducal balls where the dark grave spaniards mixed with the blonde nobility of brabant and flanders now a schoolroom for belgian girls the crossbow men's archery ground all are there the pensionnat of madame Eger. This lady was assisted in the work of instruction by her husband, a kindly, wise, good, and religious man, whose acquaintance I am glad to have made, and who has furnished me with some interesting details from his wife's recollections and his own of the two Miss Brontes during their residence in Brussels. He had the better opportunities of watching them from his giving lessons in the French language and literature in the school. A short extract from a letter written to me by a French lady resident in Brussels, and well qualified to judge, will help to show the estimation in which she is held. Je ne connais pas personnellement Monsieur Eger, mais je sais qu'il est peu de caractère aussi noble, aussi admirable que le sien. Il est un des membres les plus élevés de cette société de Saint Vincent de Paul dont je t'ai déjà parlé, et ne se contente pas de servir les pauvres et les malades, mais leur consacre encore les soirées. Après des journées absorbées tout entières par les devoirs que sa place lui impose, il réunit les pauvres, les ouvriers, leur donne des cours gratuits, et trouve encore le moyen de les amuser, en les instruisant. 
ce dévouement te dira assez que M. Eger est profondément et ouvertement religieux. Il a des manières franches et avenantes. Il se fait aimer de tous ceux qui l'approchent, et surtout des enfants. Il a la parole facile et possède à un haut degré l'éloquence du bon sens et du cœur. Il n'est point auteur. Homme de zèle et de conscience, il vient de se démettre des fonctions élevées et lucratives qu'il exerçait à l'Athénée, celles de préfet des études, parce qu'il ne peut y réaliser le bien qu'il avait espéré, introduire l'enseignement religieux dans le programme des études. J'ai vu une fois Madame Eger, qui a quelque chose de froid et de compassé dans son maintien, et qui prévient peu en sa faveur. Je la crois pourtant aimée et appréciée par ses élèves. There were from eighty to a hundred pupils in the pensionnat when Charlotte and Emily Bronte entered in February 1842. Monsieur Eger's account is that they knew nothing of French. I suspect they knew as much or as little, for all conversational purposes, as any English girls do who have never been abroad and have only learnt the idioms and pronunciation from an Englishwoman. The two sisters clung together and kept apart from the herd of happy, boisterous, well-befriended Belgian girls who, in their turn, thought the new English pupils wild and scared-looking, with strange, odd, insular ideas about dress. For, Emily had taken a fancy to the fashion, ugly and preposterous even during its reign, of gigot sleeves, and persisted in wearing them long after they were gone out. Her petticoats, too, had not a curve or a wave in them, but hung down straight and long, clinging to her lank figure. The sisters spoke to no one but from necessity. They were too full of earnest thought and of the exile's sick yearning to be ready for careless conversation or merry game. Monsieur Eger, who had done little but observe, during the first few weeks of their residence in the Rue d'Isabelle, perceived that with their unusual characters and extraordinary talents a different mode must be adopted from that in which he generally taught French to English girls. He seems to have rated Emily's genius as something even higher than Charlotte's, and her estimation of their relative powers was the same. Emily had a head for logic and a capability of argument, unusual in a man and rare indeed in a woman, according to Monsieur Eger. Impairing the force of this gift was a stubborn tenacity of will which rendered her obtuse to all reasoning where her own wishes or her own sense of right was concerned. She should have been a man, a great navigator, said Monsieur Eger in speaking of her. Her powerful reason would have deduced new spheres of discovery from the knowledge of the old, and her strong imperious will would never have been daunted by opposition or difficulty, never have given way but with life. And yet, moreover, her faculty of imagination was such that, if she had written a history, her view of scenes and characters would have been so vivid and so powerfully expressed and supported by a show of argument that it would have dominated over the reader whatever might have been his previous opinions or his cooler perceptions of its truth. 
but she appeared egotistical and exacting compared to charlotte who was always unselfish this is monsieur heger's testimony and in the anxiety of the elder to make her younger sister contented she allowed her to exercise a kind of unconscious tyranny over her after consulting with his wife m heger told them that he meant to dispense with the old method of grounding in grammar vocabulary etc and to proceed on a new plan something similar to what he had occasionally adopted with the elder among his french and belgian pupils he proposed to read to them some of the masterpieces of the most celebrated french authors such as casimir de lavigne's poem on the death of joan of arc parts of bossuet the admirable translation of the noble letter of saint ignatius to the roman christians in the bibliothèque choisie des pères de l'église etc and after having thus impressed the complete effect of the whole to analyze the parts with them pointing out in what such or such an author excelled and where there were blemishes he believed that he had to do with pupils capable from their ready sympathy with the intellectual the refined the polished or the noble of catching the echo of a style and so reproducing their own thoughts in a somewhat similar manner after explaining his plan to them he awaited their reply emily spoke first and said that she saw no good to be derived from it and that by adopting it they should lose all originality of thought and expression she would have entered into an argument on the subject but for this m heger had no time charlotte then spoke she also doubted the success of the plan but she would follow out m heger's advice because she was bound to obey him while she was his pupil before speaking of the results it may be desirable to give an extract from one of her letters which shows some of her first impressions of her new life brussels eighteen forty two may i was twenty-six years old a week or two since and at this ripe time of life i am a schoolgirl and on the whole very happy in that capacity it felt very strange at first to submit to authority instead of exercising it to obey orders instead of giving them but i like that state of things i return to it with the same avidity that a cow that has long been kept on dry hay returns to fresh grass don't laugh at my simile it is natural to me to submit and very unnatural to command this is a large school in which there are about forty externes or day pupils and twelve pensionnaires or boarders madame heger the head is a lady of precisely the same cast of mind degree of cultivation and quality of intellect as miss blank i think the severe points are a little softened because she has not been disappointed and consequently soured in a word she is a married instead of a maiden lady there are three teachers in the school mademoiselle blanche mademoiselle sophie and mademoiselle marie the two first have no particular character one is an old maid and the other will be one mademoiselle marie is talented and original but of repulsive and arbitrary manners which have made the whole school except myself and emily her bitter enemies no less than seven masters attend to teach the different branches of education french drawing music singing writing arithmetic and german 
all in the house are catholics except ourselves one other girl and the gouvernante of madame's children an englishwoman in rank something between a lady's maid and a nursery governess the difference in country and religion makes a broad line of demarcation between us and all the rest we are completely isolated in the midst of numbers yet i think i am never unhappy my present life is so delightful so congenial to my own nature compared to that of a governess my time constantly occupied passes too rapidly hitherto both emily and i have had good health and therefore we have been able to work well there is one individual of whom i have not yet spoken monsieur Heger, the husband of madame he is a professor of rhetoric a man of power as to mind but very choleric and irritable in temperament he is very angry with me just at present because i have written a translation which he chose to stigmatize as peu correct he did not tell me so but wrote the word on the margin of my book and asked in brief stern phrase how it happened that my compositions were always better than my translations adding that the thing seemed to him inexplicable the fact is some weeks ago in a high-flown humour he forbade me to use either dictionary or grammar in translating the most difficult english compositions into french this makes the task rather arduous and compels me every now and then to introduce an english word which nearly plucks the eyes out of his head when he sees it emily and he don't draw well together at all emily works like a horse and she has had great difficulties to contend with far greater than i have had indeed those who come to a french school for instruction ought previously to have acquired a considerable knowledge of the french language otherwise they will lose a great deal of time for the course of instruction is adapted to natives and not to foreigners and in these large establishments they will not change their ordinary course for one or two strangers the few private lessons that m Heger has vouchsafed to give us are i suppose to be considered a great favour and i can perceive that they have already excited much spite and jealousy in the school you will abuse this letter for being short and dreary and there are a hundred things which i want to tell you but i have not time brussels is a beautiful city the belgians hate the english their external morality is more rigid than ours to lace the stays without a handkerchief on the neck is considered a disgusting piece of indelicacy the passage in this letter where m Heger is represented as prohibiting the use of dictionary or grammar refers i imagine to the time i have mentioned when he determined to adopt a new method of instruction in the french language of which they were to catch the spirit and the rhythm rather from the ear and the heart as its noblest accents fell upon them than by over-careful and anxious study of its grammatical rules it seems to me a daring experiment on the part of their teacher but doubtless he knew his ground and that it answered is evident in the composition of some of charlotte's devoirs written about this time i am tempted in illustration of this season of mental culture to recur to a conversation which i had with m Heger on the manner in which he formed his pupil's style and to give a proof of his success by copying a devoir of charlotte's with his remarks upon it he told me that one day this summer when the brontes had been for about four months receiving instruction from him 
he read to them victor hugo's celebrated portrait of mirabeau mais dans ma leçon je me bornais à ce qui concerne mirabeau orateur c'est après l'analyse de ce morceau considéré surtout du point de vue de, du fond de la disposition de ce qu'on pourrait appeler la charpente qu'ont été faits les deux portraits que je vous donne he went on to say that he had pointed out to them the fault in victor hugo's style as being exaggeration in conception and at the same time he had made them notice the extreme beauty of his nuances of expression they were then dismissed to choose the subject of a similar kind of portrait this selection m Eger always left to them for it is necessary he observed before sitting down to write on a subject to have thoughts and feelings about it i cannot tell you on what subject your heart and mind have been excited i must leave that to you the marginal comments i need hardly say are m Eger's. the words in italics are charlotte's for which he substitutes a better form of expression which is placed between brackets End of section fifteen.